Hello, welcome to the Transforming Spaces podcast by Gendered Intelligence. I'm Annie, I use she or they pronouns. And I'm Frankie, I use he and him pronouns. And in this podcast, we're going to be looking at some of the talks that were given at the Transforming Spaces conference during November 2018. So yeah, this is the first of GI's conferences and this is also to celebrate 10 years of being in a space, in our space. So this first episode contains little clips and snippets that we've picked out from some of our favourite moments of the first five talks which will then after this be released in full and then you'll hear back for another little highlights section from me and Frankie after those uh, talks have been fully shared. And we would love to hear your favourite bits of the conference as well. So you can engage with us on our social media and you can also find us on our website which is genderintelligence.co.uk where you can give us any support or you can ask about our volunteer scheme or any of the services that we have. And to essentially keep this conversation going because it is a conversation that will be continuing to transform. Our first speaker is Francis Ray White, who's a senior lecturer of sociology at the University of Westminster. And they are introducing a talk about toilets and our trans context of toilets. Let's talk, uh, let's think about public toilets. So I think public toilets are one of the few public spaces where people still expect to be gender segregated. Um, But this has definitely not always been the case. So prior to um, about the 1820s, uh, public toilets were free-for-all public latrines. I'm sure that was lovely. Um, But as cities grew and public toilets were needed, they were constructed but only for men. Why? Uh, Because women did not wander around in public space needing to pee. They did it at home. Um, But in not providing public toilets for women, their ability to be in public space was further restricted. Um, And it wasn't until after the 1860s that women's public toilets began to appear, and it was in the midst of mass, massive opposition. Mid-1800s is also the time when um, these kind of scientific ideas about men and women's sort of fixed and innate biological differences really start to take hold, and those were ideas which were then in turn used to cement this kind of division of public and private spheres and women's sort of justifying women's confinement to the private sphere. So um, we start to see public toilet spaces being rigidly defined and policed. Uh, and what started as an effort to keep women out of men's privileged spaces becomes more about the enforcing of separate spaces for the kind of privacy or protection of women. At the time in the US when public and workplace toilets were desegregated, there were protests, there were strikes um, against the move because white people wanted to maintain white supremacy and framed it around fears for their safety. Bodies that symbolically threaten purity that blur boundaries or represent matter out of place, be they working class women's bodies in middle class women's toilet space, black bodies in segregation era US, or to an extent bodies that are disabled by the architecture of public toilets, have to be excluded to maintain the kind of social order. 
So in this way, what and then what trans bodies in a gender segregated space um, threaten to contaminate is a kind of gender purity, the presumed purity of the clean, the neat division of discrete categories of gender. So trans, non-binary, non-gender, non-conforming bodies crack that facade of binary gender, revealing some very deeply held and anxiety-inducing kind of liminal, indeterminate, in-between space that everybody is very busy pretending doesn't exist. But wait, oh no, hold on. Uh, whoa, uh, two gents or three toilets? So, um, does this suggest maybe other bodily differences or abilities might at some point override gender as the most salient factor in deciding where you get to pee? I mean, surely not two genders. Um, are disabled people therefore somehow outside the gender binary? Um, I mean, I would like to make that argument that yes, they are, because um, the gender binary is built on some very kind of ableist ideas about the look and function of heteronormative bodies. What does it mean that trans folks have to spend a lot of time talking about toilets? Um, I think on one level it further associates us with filth, uh, with pollution, with plumbing. There are a lot of efforts being made to make uh, toilet spaces gender neutral, and however well-meaning and kind of inclusive they are, they're still making going to the toilet something to do with gender, which was the problem in the first place. Um, so I think what I'm trying to say is that we need toilet spaces that are toilet spaces and not gender spaces, uh, plus obviously full destruction of compulsory binary gender. <laughs> <laughs>so what i found really interesting that is sort of thinking about the historical context of where these sort of gendered spaces exist and where we get these ideas of um sort of creating separation through public spaces and that can be a really helpful tool to help us think what are we living in at the moment what is the current context of the sort of way that toilets are being policed at the moment. I, li I like the humour of it because actually it, it's completely ludicrous, isn't it? The, the whole, uh, you know, why are we even having this conversation? There's a, and then the, the point that I think out of it really struck me was, we you know, we're talking about gender as opposed to, you know, talking about toilets. There's clearly a lot of importance put on these spaces of toilets where it's almost like the most normative people create this safe space for themselves. So in the next talk, we have my good friend, Gregory Vass, who is director of Open Barbers. His talk is held within the context, the wider context of safety on the high street. He's particularly talking about his trans-led community barber space. The reason why we set up is because very similarly to the introduction talking about getting bad, having bad experiences trying to get haircut. But the, the catalyst for Open Barbers comes from personal experience. Like I'm a trans person. Um, all through my childhood and teenage years, getting haircuts was always a very compromised experience, sometimes upsetting. Um, I always had visions of what I wanted for my hair and I was never ever able to either communicate or have that hairdresser or barber trust that I knew what I wanted and give me what I had in my mind. Mostly through meeting other queer and trans people, which I think MJ was touched on, that 
the, the, the personal experience became a shared experience and I realised that I certainly wasn't the only person who'd had those, those difficulties but also that it was a very, very community-wide anxiety. And I think one of the other reasons why we set up is because the hair and beauty industries just haven't changed enough when it comes to um, learning from queer and trans people. There's still, even though there are sort of, um, there's flirtation with androgyny as a style or, you know, like gender um, non-conformity, it still feels like it sits very much within the world of fashion or very much within the world of um, sort of what's, what seems to be trending. And I'm not really sure that businesses quite understand what they're doing with that. Some of the differences that we, that I know that we've made to people are that sometimes the haircut they've received at Open Barbers is the first time that they ever actually feel that they've ever been listened to by a, a hairdresser and that it's the first time that they've ever been given the haircut that they actually wanted. I love Open Barbers. <laughs> too. <laughs> it's totally, um, yeah, everything they were talking about um, is exactly my experience. It's nice because they were talking about... Um, his personal experience becoming a shared experience and that's exactly what it feels like when you go there isn't it um, and not only like the shared experience for me is not just about the haircut it's about the space itself mm. you know it becomes you know this you know personal idea of wanting to express yourself as an individual and then you find yourself in a in an environment where everybody's it becomes a community as well and that's one of the most important things about open barbers as well it's almost like everybody in the outside world should come mm. and spend a day in open barbers and it's just kind of like this free training that's how it feels as well it feels like a collaboration mm. you're with the hairdresser and you're working together to create something as opposed to feeling like before open barbers are going to hairdressers it wasn't a collaboration it was a negotiation and also you always felt like you were asking the impossible almost to the point of they were offended sometimes like if you didn't like what <laughs> what the, the final result and then you all see equally maybe less confident in that space and couldn't actually voice what you really needed let alone if you were able to a lot of the time you would just keep silent I really like this idea of a world where everyone's been to open barbers for <laughs> some period of time <laughs> yeah Okay, so next we've got Jake Kelly, who is our very own residential lead and youth work assistant at Gendered Intelligence. He's introducing this topic of creating safer spaces for uh, young trans people, uh, particularly in the context of our youth camps. But this year, uh, we actually managed to do our 10th and 11th camps. So we upgraded our numbers a that some of the young people in our group may identify as LGBTQ. 
We know this, all of them, and they're all trans, but what we did was in, in response to feedback from young people, I think four or five years ago, who said, actually, I don't want to be outed. You know, yeah, that's a really good point. So we leave it as summers, and we go. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a night worker on camp. Um, so we have somebody who literally arrives in the evening, we go, here are the things that happen during the day, night, see in the morning. We get to sleep, which is great, means we get to sleep. And then in the morning, the night worker says, right, here's what happened during the night, here's who I need to support, here's who you might need to look after today, here's who's going to be really tired because they stayed up to five in the morning. Um, and then the night worker goes home and gets sleep during the day and comes back, which is great. On Super Camp, we actually had little piles of sanitary products in every cubicle, which was quite cute, just so that nobody was put in a situation um, where they had to go and find one. The other key thing we do is on camp, everyone writes uh, affirmations to one another. So it's just they take a little moment where they write a message. It might be a reminder of a key moment that happened that everyone shared, or it might be a specific message to that other person that is a kind of positive memory for that person to take back into their life. And what we know is that people keep those. We know that we keep ours as well. Um, but we know that some people keep those and read them throughout the year, or that they put them up in their rooms and turn to them when they need that kind of positivity and that, that reminder that they were in a space where they were accepted. So what's the impact of all of that? I thought rather than me just telling you, I'd put up some quotes. We're 100% valid, trans and proud. Valid is the key word from Supercamp this year. You couldn't go anywhere on Supercamp without being told you were valid. <laughs> I like, you know, I like the idea that people leave camp and want to go into youth work and want to pursue that as a career based on their experiences there. Um, and I think the final one could probably be true for most of us. It's caused a profound change in me. I'm not sure what it is yet, but I know it's for the better. So this one was really difficult to pick out the best bits. I could really listen to all the methodology that's gone into this that uh, Jake and Finn, who you'll hear in the full episode as well, have put into creating these like really radical spaces where the standard of youth work that goes on there as well as the safety for the young people that exists there is just unlike anywhere else I've ever experienced because it's it's modelled by trans people and it's creating this environment which is totally the place that we would want to be in, like mm. this world that we want to exist within and bring out that sort of what we've learned in those spaces out into our everyday lives and mm. sort of harness that. I think that sort of is brought up in when Jake's talking about um, us all having mm -hmm. little notes from each other. Yeah, affirmations. Little affirmations mm. of love and care. And I sometimes dip back into my affirmations and see what people had thought of our time <laughs> while we were there and how we shared that space. And to be in there for a few days at a time as well. Mm -hmm. you, I really felt like I left that as a changed person. Mm -hmm. I always remember Finn talking about, you know, having this a few hours in a day or an evening and young people would come into the space and would, you know, within those couple of hours, you know, they might arrive and be fairly closed and maybe anxious and scared. And because also living in the outside world, which, you know, you have to put up all these barriers to keep yourself safe and suddenly they're in an environment where they can slowly begin to open their arms let their hair down breathe having three four five days 
you know, you could really start to live in your body and live in an environment and be yourself. We've got Toby, who's one of our young people who came on Supercamp, giving a, a little reflection on what camp meant for him. We could have a reflection at the end of camp and um, said what we were taking away from it. And I think one of the things that stood out to me was like a knowledge of what I deserve. Um, it's not necessarily what I can expect when I'm in the wider world, but it was a, a knowledge of like how I deserve to be treated by other people. It was kind of a space where you were allowed to not be trans, which sounds really counterintuitive, but because everyone in that space was trans, it, it wasn't the same thing about you. You're not that trans person. You know, I could be. Toby who likes to play guitar because that's something about me rather than being like Toby that trans guy you know you kind of get boxed off into that for me as a, like, as a trans man a kind of trans bit at the beginning of my gender identity didn't matter because in that space I was what it meant to be a man it, it wasn't like I'm some kind of subset of manhood in that space I was the very definition of what that meant in, in some ways, their transness is invisible here, or it doesn't have to be. It's, it's kind of that, that label is gone, and so actually what's visible is all of me, like with transness mm. or without. But then there's, it's almost like, you know, sometimes when you explode things so much, so you have the, if you like, the disappearance of transness, but then because everybody in that space is trans, collectively, you've got this kind of even greater visibility. Mm. Um, and to, full embracing of that yeah. identity. No shame involved in it because mm. everyone can celebrate that. Mm -hmm. So next up we have Saba Chowdhury, um, who's talking about their experience of being a trans and people of colour youth worker and mentor within gendered intelligence. So GI has always made space for young people to exist without judgment and questioning with acceptance and respect. And that means having spaces that exclude others to ensure that we are truly included. As a trans person of colour, I know how important it is to be able to have those conversations about race and gender away from cisness and away from whiteness. And even here in London, that is hard to do. And when I have been able to have those conversations, those really well-needed conversations, about my own race and my own gender, it's given me space to grow into myself and spread out. Trans youth of colour are complex because our cultures, our faiths, and our families are complex. And I'm sure that you might have your assumptions and stereotypes about what their lives might look like. I don't want to focus on what you might see as the stereotypes, which are essentially the differences from the mainstream narratives that mean that youth aren't heard, things like religion or perceived traditional family values which of course do bring their challenges, but I want to try and focus on the similarities, which are actually what can dissolve those stereotypes and encourage mainstream narratives to widen for trans youth of colour. As trans youth of colour have intersecting identities, the space to support them needs to be intersectional too. For me, it's about redefining space and doing normal things, queering and transing them up a bit and adding a bit of colour, or as I like to call it, adding critical race theory and an intersectional feminist lens. <laughs> because these normal things aren't in our normality, and the definition of space doesn't include us. I took four of our wonderful trans youth of colour away in August for a four-day, one-of-a-kind residential in the beautiful and serene Yorkshire Dales. Uh, so we joined 18 LGBTQ BME young people and seven workers from Sheffield, Manchester, Bradford and Birmingham. We had so much fun, 
It was like laughing survival crying plan. It was silly and it was actually quite liberating. As one in person said, the time we had was too was much too short and it should be once a year. It's the only space I've had that makes me feel like I'm not suffocated. And I want to read you this beautiful quote I pulled out by a young person. Please continue to create a safe space where we all heal each other's scars with love, understanding and positivity. Safe, safety, security, safe haven. This is why the residential is so important. Young people of colour felt safe. The bit that was really touching to me was uh, Sava saying that they could grow into themselves and spread out. That's such a, a sort of poignant way of saying, I think, self-acceptance and feeling able to show that to the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that moment about spreading out as well. It's very visual, isn't it? It's kind of, and also goes as well, links back to Finn talking about spreading out is, is your, your letting go. Because we are small, group within a big world as trans people. It's very easy to forget how intersecting identities mm -hmm. can have complex relationships that needs their own support systems. When we look to a space to go to, does it reflect us? And if it doesn't, um, the assumption is this is not mine then. Um, and that, that needs to kind of continually be um, challenged and changed. Yeah, so Kate McSweeney, who is telling us about a project um, that was done with young people, our young people, um, focusing on what is wrong with museum artefacts. Right, change is necessary in museums, cultural institutions want to stay relevant in the 21st century um, society. And in the embracing of this disruption, dissensus, and discomfort, there is opportunities for real impact. GI and the Science Museum worked together in 2012 on a really small project and the youth group then felt that the portrayal of gender in the Who Am I gallery was particularly simplistic, binary and incredibly problematic. For example, one of the display cases encourages visitors to consider how their biological sex and gender plays a part in their identity, yet frames this within the binary parameters of the question, boy or girl? How could they create a display telling their stories if there wasn't objects there to do that. So we decided to disrupt that, to say, this is supposed to be a project around using museum objects, but maybe let's not use those objects. So both unrepresentative and unappealing, we began to think about an alternative display that would have a small but significant trans-specific collection borrowed and donated mainly from those young participants. The newly brought in objects and the stories they wanted to tell merge more succinctly to um, represent the identities and the politics of those young trans people. So collectively these workshops sought to demonstrate a shift from seeing gender no longer as boy-girl but moving towards being gender as something much more dynamic. They wanted to kind of communicate that everyone has their own experience of conforming or not conforming to societal expressions of expectation, expressions and expectations of gender. So they wanted to ask the visitors who came to the museum, what makes up your gender? And to think about what objects they use to express their gender identity. The objects donated were different and more modern in many ways to the objects that we had already. They were entrenched with rich, personalised histories which were recorded and stored with the objects, as can be seen from one on this slide. 
So this object was donated by a young trans woman, and her donation was a chance to immortalise, as she said, in the National Collection, a pivotal moment in her transition in the hope that those who access them in the future could hear her story, and thus have a greater understanding of what it means and what is involved in transition in 2014. We are future-proofing the interpretation of trans identities and histories within the medical context for the future. So I really love to think about historical context of things and how we record things and how we um, decide what is what is true and who creates that truth. And I think <laughs> on top of that, I really love the way that people always speak when they've done workshops with our young people. And I think that's really shown in this, mm -hmm. um, that the way that our young people interact with this sort of thing often come from a very radical position where they will not be um, subtle in saying if something is a load of rubbish mm -hmm. and if they think that that is not showing who they are they will mm -hmm. just come out and say that which gives us really amazing opportunity for real life human experience to be the history that is written mm -hmm. rather than an outside perspective of what a trans life is it's handing over that opportunity to say what is your experience how would you record that and how would you interact with that yeah there was a funny bit in there where she talks about as you were saying, the, the young people point out this is, uh, I mean, when do you ever say a museum is simplistic? But <laughs> our young people do because they, they can see what's wrong with it. So, and, and also the, the, diff, the change as well. So you've got these kind of objects, artifacts that are simplistic and suddenly you hand it over to a young trans community and it becomes personalized and she used the words rich. So we've jumped from simplistic to rich which is an incredible leap. And I really like the idea of, yeah, these um, objects which have a story are then accessible to, you know, that which would have been, you know, an absolutely sort of a transitional moment in her life will continue to live in the lives of more young people as they reach their pivotal moments. And it kind of has this, yeah, continuing lifespan. So we've now got a talk from Eleanor Lanyon, who's a former youth and community engagement officer at the Welcome Collection. And this is supported by Dr. Jana Funke, who's a senior lecturer at the University of Exeter. And together they talk about another project run with our young people, uh, where they created the Transvengers comic. Uh, I'm here today to talk about Transvengers, um, which was a co-production project between the Welcome Collection and Gendered Intelligence. Uh, which was part of a year-long exhibition events and project season exploring the history of sexology. So we had to um, identify the key narratives and key individuals that were going to be in the exhibition before it existed. The brilliant Jason Barker, <laughs> who is unfortunately embroiled in the toilet discussion, um, suggested creating a webcomic. So each uh, member of the group created their own avatar, which gave them a level of anonymity and a freedom to be imaginative. And it also gave them the ability to travel through time. So what they, the um, transvengers did was they went back in, into the past, 
got to meet some of the sexologists whose ideas are still shaping the way that we think about sexuality and gender today, and give them a, a, a good talking to, and uh, ask them some very difficult questions. <laughs> One of the things that I think is particularly powerful about the comic is that it gave young people the chance to share personal experiences or typical experiences which would help people understand some of the challenges they face. The young people interviewed me and asked me questions and I answered not as myself, but actually as the different sexologists. Mm, so I answered yeah. in character and kind of channeled the different sexologists, which was kind of a new experience for me, but so uh, really amazing and really taught me a lot about public engagement and how to work with people. Um, so that was there and I think the cartoon really shows that there is this longer history around trans experience and trans identity, which for the young people is really important mm. to see that it's not a new phenomenon or new trend or hype or whatever, but there is this deep history that is, you know, part of Welcome Collections, as you say, a very impressive building and a kind of, you know, powerful institution and to make sure that that is represented and visitors see that. And the history of sexologists is a tiny part of trans history, but it's one important part of it. The young people were brilliant in being very critical and interrogating the sexologists, me in that moment, but also actually trying to understand where they, they are coming from. You know, and I think the comic does that, I think with Freud particularly well, to show that actually Freud wasn't necessarily a horrible person, but there were things that he just couldn't understand because he was restrained by um, just the frameworks in which he was living and thinking. The comic is so powerful because it is about trans identity and trans history, but it's also about the ways in which, you know, the straightest, most cis person, whoever that might be, their lives too are framed by heteronormative ideals, and the sexologists were a group of people that shaped heteronormativity in really influential ways. What this project really touches on is how powerful it can be to create your own framing for your past and be able to reclaim these things that weren't necessarily understood within different contexts and be able to think about the paradigm that we exist in and how that affects our lives. That wasn't accessible to people in different times and different eras. So. Yes, we can look back and criticise, but what's touched upon is that actually these people had no point of reference to think of it any differently. Mm -hmm. So that does give us a lot of ownership of where we are now, I think, but also allows us to give us an explanation of why there's a lot of absence of mm -hmm. this understanding in the past. I love the idea of um, feeling sorry for Freud <laughs> because of the poor man's own restraints <laughs> that gave him, you know, not that, um, that ability to kind of see beyond. We will put the link for the Transvengers comment in the description of this. So do check it out. And last but not least, we have EJ Scott, who's the curator of the Museum of Transology and is expressing extremely well how important having a museum of this kind is. But I am a curator and a museum person and it's this framework we were building on the same kind of models because we have to prioritise the community talking for themselves. Museums are not neutral spaces. For a start, they're sites of privilege. They're places that are also full of gaps. 
um, collections reflect their collectors. Within collections, you know, rewriting the history backwards, people put on this lens and say, we can't call them trans because we didn't have that word back then. But we can call them she, you know, or we can use the pronoun they because we just don't know. Well, they is a modern construct as well. So I, I think there's a lot of challenges surrounding representation and really delving into transestry and dealing with it appropriately. Ultimately, museums create meaning. To not see yourself on the walls of a museum is to be rendered historically homeless. It's to be told that your life is not worth remembering and that you are destined to be forgotten. So, what do you do when you don't have a collection representing your community? You build one, because collecting reflects the collectors, right? These are objects that you wouldn't normally see in exhibitions, and this is where I have my social history lens on. They're everyday objects, so they're ordinary. Some of them are extraordinary in their ordinariness, but they're not things that are going to ever be in the Silver Gallery in the V&A. They fill a gap in museum collections by injecting real trans people's voices, not the media, not the medical system, not the critics, not the politicians, and they put us back into the history books before we, this moment in time slips past again and it can only be reinterpreted through the lens of the media that spectacularises us. Our policy was to collect everything that anyone wanted to give us. So there was no hierarchy of objects and no curatorial voice sitting over the top. What really interests me about the way Jay talks here is thinking about framing in a world where people want to design this frame of which our trans experience exists in. We have these opportunities to dispose of that framing and create our own framing. And I think that's why things like looking at very ordinary objects has this total different meaning when we can put it under our trans lens rather than having an exhibition mm -hmm. where people who aren't trans are trying to create some sort of rhetoric about how trans lives exist. This is so much more organic and mm -hmm. true to mm -hmm. actual lives. It's interesting how it, um, you know, the, the, the whole conference is about spaces and in a way this um, podcast is ending on, he's talking about gaps. So there are gaps within our spaces and part of this project is filling those gaps with the real voices and the real artifacts that need to be kind of stored in a museum. I don't know, the whole the whole thing actually, the, it, it feels very visual as well um, from Saba's comments about kind of spreading out. And I think we are, we are spreading out and we're relaxing and with spaces um, there are new words which we may have heard before and but not for very long like the word itself transestry is um, was I don't know it stuck out I kind of was just like yeah okay transestry that's mm. I really like I like saying it transestry <laughs> <laughs> it's ours thank you for listening to this episode so our next episode will be the full Toilets Talk, so make sure to tune into that and then the following few episodes after that will be talks uploaded in full. 
you'd like to support us or find out any more information about us, you can go to the website at genderedintelligence.co.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr. Our Twitter handle at genderintel, that's at genderintel. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you are listening to us so you can be filled in with our next episode we will be uploading weekly so make sure to tune into the next one so if this conference (laughs) has been interesting to you make sure to save the dates of the 15th and 16th of november 2019 that's the 15th and 16th of november 2019 (laughs) put it in your diaries because we will be back for another transforming something podcast (laughs) (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha